Council. And uh, today he's going to talk to all of us about order in the church. Order in the church. Some of us have at least seen court programs on television when there has been disruption in the court and the judge grabs the gavel and says, order in the court. I thought not always necessary, but occasionally because of the disarray, some disagreement or dispute within the courtroom, the judge has to say, order. And that's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth in this chapter. He is calling for order in their church. This letter was written to them because of the lack of order in their fellowship. Their worldly, self-centered attitudes had created division, distrust, disputes, and even doctrinal aberrations. It was a congregation that was in chaos. And amazingly, all of that, after Paul himself had been their pastor for a year and a half. Among the issues that created tension in the fellowship of Corinth was the abuse of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is a blessed truth. It says that we are no longer under the condemnation of law-keeping. It says that we are no longer under the bondage that comes from man-made rules. It says that we are no longer blinded by the deceptive teachings of false religion that lead us away from the true God. We are free from those things. The Christian is liberated in Jesus Christ to walk in the truth and to fellowship with God. It's a wonderful, blessed truth. And yet, I repeat that this particular congregation was destroying itself with abuse of Christian liberty. Because you see, there is a true idea of Christian liberty, and there's a false idea. The false notion is that a Christian is free to do whatever he wants to do. That is not Christian liberty as defined in the Bible. The true idea of Christian liberty is that the Christian is free to do whatever he should. Not whatever he wants, but whatever he should under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, the problem arose out of the culture of that city. We have talked before about this church being a worldly church. No church is in trouble because it's in the world, but when the world gets in the church, it's in deep trouble. And that was the case with Corinth. Now, the culture of that day treated women basically as property, as slaves. And as a response, in the culture of the city, there was a movement for women's freedom and women's rights. It was right. They had been suppressed and oppressed. However, the difficulty for this church lay in understanding how believing women, Christian women, ought to conduct themselves in the context of that culture and in the context of their public worship. 
Apparently, some of them had gone too far being influenced by the liberation movement of their day and had sought to discard some of the appropriate, modest apparel and behavior that would glorify God and advance his reputation in the midst of their pagan city. Now, as we come to this chapter, we have to acknowledge that the text is complicated and that there is room in it for disagreement in certain respects. The attempt has to be made to differentiate between the principles of God and the customs of the first century Corinthian culture. The principles we want to lift out of here as God will help us do that so that we can apply them to our own culture, which is obviously quite different than first century Corinth. Paul views the root issue here as one of disorder in the church. He sees the, the essential problem as one of insubordination to God's revealed pattern of authority. And in that sense, it is a serious breach of their theology. It is a breach of their theology that, that showed itself in the way that they conducted themselves in the church. Now what I want to say to you this morning basically is this, that order comes from God. And so to glorify God as we have been commanded to do at the end of chapter 10, we must value God's order and follow it gladly. Disorder, confusion, chaos, and disarray all come from either the flesh or the devil. It is the result of sin at work. Order comes from God. We have been commanded to glorify God in everything that we do, and so therefore we must value God's order and follow it gladly. Paul begins our text today by commending the Corinthians. He says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. These are the oral teachings the ordinances of the church. Paul begins by praising and commending them, as, in fact, he does this whole book. You remember in chapter 1, he, be he begins by reminding them that they have everything they need, and God has enriched them, and he commends them in certain respects. And then he launches into this correction of the problems that they were experiencing. Now he does a similar thing here. <laughs> He begins in verse 1 by patting them on the back, and while they're enjoying that, he grabs them by the necktie. And he says, I have some things I want to talk to you about to correct you. The first thing that he does is to outline for them God's plan. God's plan for order. God's plan for authority. And it's, it's summarized in three sentences, really, in verse 1. 3, when he says, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God 
is the head of Christ. He says, here is God's plan. Now you notice there are three occasions that he uses the word head. There is great debate today about what the meaning of this word kephale is in the original language. I am convinced from my own study of it that it's referring to the idea of authority over. Now you will find those who try to tell us that it means the source of. They uh, have the name within the evangelical world today of egalitarians. And in reading their books and hearing their talks, they sound very convincing that, in fact, the word kephale can be properly interpreted, the source of. But if you look at the extra-biblical literature and weigh the evidence, if you examine the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which had the most powerful influence upon apostolic thinking and New Testament doctrine. And then if you look at how Paul uses the words in the contexts where he does, it seems to me that the stronger argument by far is that when Paul uses the word head, he's talking about authority over. Now I mention this today because within another week we're going to have a conference up the road from here of the Christians for Biblical Equality which, as much as I know, is a very fine, sincere organization of egalitarians, those who believe other than we do. Uh, when you hear people like Gilbert Belazikian, who is uh, lifted up by Bill Hybels, who agrees with him, or you hear or read Gordon Fee or Catherine Clark Kroger, or more germane to our own area, Alvera Michelson, who along with her late husband Berkeley advocated this view, you will know where they're coming from. They're a part of the Christians for Biblical Equality, which is uh, headquartered here in the Twin Cities. They take an opposite view of what I'm presenting to you this morning. But I'm convinced that when he says God is the head of Christ, the Apostle Paul is saying that God is the authority over Christ. That is, Christ placed himself under the authority of the Father. Although, we know in every respect he is equal to the Father. In every essence he is deity, as is the Father. But for the purpose of order, for the purpose of function, for the purpose of carrying out the plan of redemption, the Son subordinated himself to the Father, though equal with him. And he says, Christ is the head of every man. In other words, every believing man is his idea. The believing man submits himself to Christ's lordship and depends upon Christ for his grace and direction so that he might be the man of God and the leader of his home that he ought to be, a servant leader. Christ is the head, the authority over every man. And he says the man is the head of a woman. He is speaking here in the context of marriage. It is not that 
a man is the head over every woman, but a husband is the head of his wife. That is, he is the authority over her. And the wife places herself under the authority of her husband. She is not in the least inferior to her husband. And in some respects is superior to him, just by the way that she's made and wired. But for the purpose of the functioning of the home, she places herself subordinate to her husband, as Christ did the same to the Father, and as man does to Christ. And so each of these couplings represents an equality of relationship, and yet there is an authority over in each case as well. Now, Paul says that is God's plan. That is God's order. And what he wants us to do is to value his order. Not to try to get out of it because of the pressures of our culture, too. Because in a certain respect, our culture and the Corinthian culture have a lot in common. But he says, in the midst of the pressure in the opposite direction, we are to value God's order and follow it gladly. And so, beginning with verse 4, the apostle begins to delve into the Corinthian problem. And uh, to put it succinctly, it seems to be that some believing women were, were not giving evidence of submission to the authority that God had given that is, to their husbands, and perhaps even to male leadership within the church. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about this? Why is this so important? I'll tell you why. It is that the testimony of God's orderly arrangement in the church is at stake. That's what's the big deal. God's testimony, God's plan, God's orderly arrangement of things is jeopardized when we don't value it and follow it. Now, the problem in Corinth was rooted in the customs of that culture, as we will see in the language. It seems that the prostitutes of the temples shaved their heads, or they had shorn hair, that is, hair that was cut short, and they walked around blatantly with unveiled heads. There was no modesty in them. And uh, Paul is here saying that the, the Corinthian women dare not identify with that kind of woman. The, the Corinthian believing women seem to have understood their liberation in Christ, their identity in Christ, that there is neither male nor female any longer, and then in light of that little statement that we've looked at before that was popular, all things are lawful, they disregarded the customs about head coverings. And in doing so, gave the fellowship a bad reputation. They were ruining its testimony by their reaction, their abuse of Christian liberty. And so Paul's answer to them is that women should continue to show modesty and submission in church by covering their heads. 
And he gives six reasons why women should take this action. The first is for the reason of propriety, verses 5 and 6. Let's back up to catch verse 4, where he says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. He's speaking ironically here. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Paul is saying, for reason of propriety, a woman needs to be modest and cover her head in church. To participate in public worship in modestly disgraces her head. And that word head here could be referring to she herself, or it could be referring to her husband. But in either respect, Paul sees a certain disgrace for the women to so act within the church as they are participating in worship. Secondly, he says, for reason of creation, women are to show their submission in this respect. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Now, Paul is not saying here that a woman is not created in the image of God, but his thrust here, his, his emphasis is on the word glory. That's his point. And he's saying that a man is created in the glory of God, a woman is the glory of the man. And he explains what he means. For a man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. He is going back to creation. And he is saying that man was created by God out of dust. A woman was created out of man from his rib. Verse 9, For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. That is, Eve was created because Adam was incomplete. Adam needed a helper. And so God created Eve to be his helper, to help him with his tasks, to complement him. And so Paul is going back to the order of creation and to the, the reason of creation. And he says, for this reason, a woman needs to take her role in the church very seriously by covering her head and showing outwardly her subordination to God's order of things, which was evident even in the creation. Now those who take the opposite view from me will say, yes, but you know, all of that has to do with the fall. Friends, what he talks about in verses 8 and 9 was before the fall into sin. It's unrelated to that. It has to do with God's order of creation when everything was good. He says, The woman is, not of man, is from man, therefore she is his glory, and she should honor him as such. 
In verse 10, he gives another reason. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I call this the reason of example, and frankly, I do not fully understand it. I only see what Paul says here. He says there is some respect in which angels are present as we worship God together. And a woman who is modest and is submissive and gives evidence of that by her head covering in that culture is a woman who is an example to the angels of the beauty of subordination, the beauty of God's order. The angels are watching. And for that reason, she should conduct herself in this way. Number four, verses 11 and 12, for reason of theology. Now, Paul kind of takes the other side for a moment because he says, However, in the Lord neither is the woman independent of the man, nor is man independent of woman. In other words, there is an interdependence. For as the woman originates from the man, Adam's rib, so also the man has his birth through the woman. That is the case from every generation since Adam. And so we are dependent upon each other. He points toward an interdependence, and yet he says all things originate from God. The interdependence as well as the difference of role, the difference of function, all things originate from God. And so he points toward theology here. He says God is the one who has established not only the, the need for each other and the, the equality that exists, but he is the one who has set the difference of role. I must hasten on to verses 13 through 15 where he gives the reason of nature. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper, is it fitting for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her for a covering, that is a natural covering. It doesn't negate what he said before about this, this shawl covering that he is asking for, but he says it is a natural covering. Now notice here the argument or the reason from nature. Now what does he mean by this? There are those who say, well, it's the culture of that day that was saying it. Nothing beyond that. But I think the better argument is that Paul is talking about the very nature of things, the way that we think. It is inbred in us that this is the case. It may be reflected in culture and reinforced, and it may not be. But it's the nature of things. It's the same idea that he used in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about men with men and women with women doing that which is against nature. The very same word. He's talking about that which we innately know as right or wrong. And he says even nature tells us that. And then in verse 16 he gives his final reason. 
He says, if one is inclined to be contentious, to fight about this, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Here is the reason of uniformity. Paul says, I want you in Corinth to do the same that is done in the other churches that have been founded. There is no other practice than the one that I'm telling you now. And so adhere to it. And so Paul brings before us the problem in Corinth and then lays out the reasons why he is correcting their practice or their mispractice, their malpractice. Now, what is the application to us today? It's not to be found, in my opinion, in the wearing of shawls or hats or veils by women. I believe that aspect of the chapter is indeed cultural. But he is talking about an attitude that needs to be displayed. That is the spirit of humility and modesty and submission. That spirit is at the very heart of godliness and of true femininity. And whatever the cultural means that appropriately shows that is, that's what the woman in a culture should adopt. And it will be different here in the United States than it will be in a tribal group in the middle of India. And so we need to understand that how it's shown is not as important as the spirit, the heart attitude that values God's order. Now, in closing, I want to look at our principles. What are the principles that come out of this text that we need to alert ourselves to in the midst of a culture like ours? Okay? As I talk about our principles, I want to begin by telling you what this text does not teach. It does not teach that women must wear hats to church. What if they do? Wonderful. It's a good thing, but it's not required. If it's fashionable, fine. Secondly, it does not teach that women have no ministry in the church when it's gathered together. Indeed, there is suggestion here that the women of Corinth were praying and prophesying in the church. And Paul, acknowledging that, does not correct it. Now, when we get to chapter 14, we're going to argue this a little bit. Because there he seems to correct it. But in this context, he acknowledges that the women were in their public services participating by leading in prayer and by uh, prophesying. Only there to do it now, he says, showing proper subordination. And then it does not teach that women can never be an authority over men in any context, including ministry. There are times when it is quite appropriate for women to be over men. I was just reading, in fact, uh, an article written several years ago now by a professor in a seminary where there was a debate regarding whether a woman should be put on the faculty of that seminary in a particular area. And uh, his argument I thought was very powerful that a seminary is not the same thing as a church, first of all. It's not a local church. It's a seminary. And so we can't bring the rules of the church directly into the seminary and say these have to apply there. 
But he went on to show, I thought, persuasively, that in fact it was appropriate for her to be appointed to the faculty of that seminary in that particular area, even though she would have male students answering to her. Paul is not saying here that women can never be in authority over men. That is not what he's saying. But in the context of the church, and particularly of the public worship, that's what he is calling for. Now there are principles to guide our conduct also. I think that these are supra-cultural ideals that we need to apply in our own lives, our own church. The first is the principle of modesty. Modesty. Modesty is always appropriate in any culture for Christian women and men. Our attire, especially the attire that we wear to church, ought to be decent. Now, it may not be the latest fashion. It doesn't have to be the most expensive. I'm not saying that at all, but it ought to be decent. It ought to be appropriate for a time when we come into the presence of God. We ought to be careful what we wear to church and give some thought to it. Our dress reflects our heart. Sometimes the informality of our dress alarms me when we come to church. And I wonder if we really understand that we're not just going to a picnic, we are coming into the presence of the holy and awesome God of the universe. If we've really thought about that as we've gotten dressed to go to church. I call it the principle of modesty. I think under this heading also I want to say this, that there should be a distinction between men and women in appearance and in fashion. Uh, we still have within our culture this thread of unisex, trying to design clothing that makes no distinction. I had never heard of Versace before this week. I'm sorry, that's my ignorance. I acknowledge that. I'm way out of touch in the world of fashion. And I'm very sorry about the man's death. Truly, I, I am sorry about that. But just look at the people who are designing clothing in the fashion world today and their lifestyle. And it should alarm any thinking person who is aware of the distinction between sexes about the influence that these people have as they try to force immodest, disgraceful, unisex, and my wife would join me by saying ugly <laughs> fashions that do not enhance femininity often, but degrade it. Well, I'm in deep enough on that one. Let me move on to principle number two, the principle of testimony. Every church member should consider the effect of his or her choices in his life upon the church's witness in the community. Paul is telling these women, look, how you conduct yourself is affecting the witness of your church. 
that ought to be a concern to all of us, men and women. It's a concern is that we live our lives, conduct ourselves out there in the offices and the business world and on the streets and, and in driving and in everything that we do so that nothing would detract from the witness of our church and from the glory of God. Principle number three, the principle of respect. While we are equally members of one body, all of us, we have differing functions due to gender, due to gifts, due to calling. And God, God has arranged it that way. We are to uphold God's order. We are to value God's order and one another. We are to respect one another for whom God has called us to be. The principle of respect. Number four, the principle of observation. We, I don't understand this, but gathered here today, we are the objects of intense curiosity in the spirit world. God is using us as examples of his grace and his wisdom to these creatures that we cannot see, but who every day intersect with our lives in our, and our world. The principle of observation and how that ought to affect all of us every day. And one final principle, and that's the principle of authority. God has established proper lines of authority. He has done that in the home, and in the church, and in the state. We are called upon to serve God within those lines. He is a God of order. He is a God of peace. And his order and peace should be reflected in our worship and in our conduct. It is God who has ordained that husbands should lead the home. It is God who has ordained that qualified, godly, called men should lead the church. We need to value God's order and gladly follow it. Now understand that when God establishes order, he does it not to hurt us, not to hinder us, but to help us. To protect us, all of us. I believe that we prove that we value God's order when we put into practice these five principles that we just looked at. It's one thing to say, yes, I value God's order. It's another to live it. And when we, we practice these five principles we've just talked about, in the context of our culture today, we're showing that we truly value God's arrangement. And I ask you the question, do you value God's orderly arrangement? Are you following God's order gladly in the church? Are you following God's order gladly in your home? If so, then that honors God, and he is pleased by that. 
If so, then you are doing what Paul tells us to do when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And then he immediately tells us what God's order is. Glorify him in the order that he has given. How can we know when we're not valuing God's order? How do we know when we're not truly valuing the the authority that God has placed in our lives. Chuck Swindoll, in a message uh, regarding Saul's life, King Saul of the Old Testament, shares four characteristics of those who are not valuing God's order and God's authority. He says, number one, there's defiance against authority to accomplish one's own desire. Defiance. Number two, there is rationalization and cover-up to excuse sinful action. There's rationalization, there's argument to cover up. Number three, there's defensiveness when confronted with the truth. And number four, there's resistance to accountability when wrong has been committed. To the extent that those kinds of things are in our lives, we really need to examine whether we're valuing and following God's order. When we follow God's order, when we value what God has ordained for our good, it brings blessing to our lives. And that's what Paul longed for in the church in Corinth, oh, that they would get themselves in order. Order in the church, he says, so that they as a body could be blessed and could experience the fullness of joy that comes from obedience to God. Let's all be living there. Let's all value what God has said to us, even if sometimes we don't fully understand it. Even if sometimes it doesn't allow us to do all that we want to do, and we may even chafe a bit inside. Let's ask God to teach us why his order is right and value it and follow it gladly. Gladly. Let's pray. To whatever extent, Lord, that our lives are not following your order I pray that you will, in your loving and and, and gracious way, show us that. And give us hearts that are sorry, which are moved to genuine repentance. Lord, remind us that your order is given for our good. And today, if some of us are really resisting and chafing inside against the order that you have put into our lives, turn us around for our own good, for the good of our families, for the good of our marriages, for the good of our church fellowship, for the good of our own health. Turn us around and humble us and help us to truly, truly value the authorities that you have placed in our lives. 
And we begin that process by submitting ourselves to you, Lord Jesus. Subordinating ourselves to you. Have your way in us. Let's sing together that little chorus that calls him Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from... As you subordinate yourself to the Father, so we subordinate ourselves to the authorities that you've placed in our lives, first to you and then to others, and we choose to follow it gladly. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being in worship today with us. And uh, if you want to stone me, I'll be right over here at this door afterward. <laughs> I think I heard thunder earlier. Did you hear thunder? I asked Tim Bates how he was able to arrange the sound effects while he was praying. I thought that thunder was very effective, didn't you, to the background of his prayer. Uh, so that being the case, I would imagine we need to vacate this auditorium so that others can get in here for their next worship service. God bless you, and have a wonderful week walking with the Lord. I hope to see you tonight at a quarter till six for ice cream.